is CBS Eye on the World. Here's John Batchelor. Ukraine crisis. I go to George Friedman, the chairman and founder of Geopolitical Futures in Dubai, traveling, commenting on what we're witnessing in the fog of war in Ukraine conflict. George, in his remarks for Geopolitical Futures, calls it a long war. George, a very good evening to you. The Russians attack, surprising everyone. Surprise is an important element in military doctrine. And then you are you you write that what we're witnessing now is a profile of a long war in which everybody gets a vote. What what is a long war? What is Russia surprised to find after it surprised the world with the attack? Good evening to you, George. Good evening. Well, wars begin by somebody rolling the dice. Start as they have this war and they want to win it fast. Nobody starts a war thinking it'll go on for 22 years. Um, in this particular case, the Russians rolled the dice and it came up snake eyes. They wound up in a war they didn't want, which means that they have most of their force in already. And the Ukrainians are constantly building up their force because whatever you take in surprise and survive, you have a lot more to put in there. So we're looking at a war which, if it doesn't get negotiated to an end, uh, can take a very long time and really drain the Russians. This is a profile using the word long, relatively speaking. The U.S. in Afghanistan was 20 years. In Iraq, I don't remember the exact count. I guess we could date it 2011, so seven years. And both those fit the long war profile. The U.S. overwhelmed Afghanistan. I remember Donald Rumsfeld remarking that we're running out of targets. I think that was early on. We're running out of targets to bomb. There wasn't that much in Afghanistan to reduce to rubble. The Russians have have continued to pound cities. Is that out of frustration? Is that because they don't know how to fight an insurgency or another peer? You could hardly call Ukraine's army uh, peer quality. What is it that the Russians are demonstrating that makes this difficult for them? Well, they have not been able to break the Ukrainian army precisely because it has no center of gravity. There's no point you hit and take them out. And therefore, they've been mobile and they knew the countryside and they were driving the Russians crazy. One option in this situation, if you don't plan to just back out, is frankly terror. You start inflicting massive casualties on non-combatants, combatants, with the hope that you'll break the spirit of the resistance and that will work. They're experimenting with that. They haven't really cut loose on it. But they have started to do that, particularly, you know, in their bombing of cities and the particular facilities. So it's not a pleasant thing to be doing. But when you're up against the wall, you sometimes try it to see if it works. So surprise they had and they lost. Swift speed they had and they lost or it, it went away right away. Now they're trying terror, uh, mass bombardment of major cities. But you report they're running out of infantry. Did we know that beforehand, that Russia had a limit on its conscripts for any particular time? Polish intelligence knew that. I'm not sure the U.S. intelligence did. Very early on in the war, I was told by people in Poland that the Russians had committed 80 percent of their force. 
I found that very difficult to believe because it wasn't that much of a force. I thought that they would have a much larger reserve ready to go. But in fact, they didn't, partly because they'd restructured their military and partly because they committed a massive sin. They underestimated their enemy. They thought that the mere presence of Russian forces would cause such a crisis of of confidence, uh, break their morale, that they'd capitulate very quickly. They did not expect them to stand and fight this way. And the force they had available was built around the assumption of shock and awe. They did not expect to have to bring in reinforcements. What we're told now, and it's fog of diplomacy, is that Russia says through intermediaries, that it's going to concentrate on the Donbass, Luhansk, Donetsk, perhaps Mariupol as well, down to the Crimea to to develop what would be a corridor, a land corridor from Russia to Crimea. You report that that would create more problems because it's a what you call a narrow salient. Is there evidence that the Russians are thinking through how vulnerable that that land corridor will be in the event that there's a apparent ceasefire, but a long term insurgency launched against Russia? I'm sure they're aware of it. They're 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 good commanders. And I also doubt that they're actually going to offer this. Remember that that suggestion was floated by, you know, by connected sources. They have not yet put on the table for certain what their position is. The meetings that go on are all exploratory. So I don't think that they'd want that particularly because they would have fought a long war. It would look good. But at a certain point, the Ukrainians come in and slash that wide open. So it's very hard to see how the war ends. And in the meantime, they're reaching a point that they've got to end it because their casualties are mounting so much. Casualties and logistics resources. Another thing, did we know the Russians had trouble with logistics? Did we know that they couldn't deliver food? We're told that some of these conscripts appear at doors of civilians begging for food. Did we know that? We didn't know it was that bad. We knew from back in the Cold War that the Russians had a tremendous problem supplying fuel to tanks moving forward. Now, one of the reasons that they never launched an invasion, leaving everything else aside, is they really had trouble maintaining logistics line. It's, it's pretty difficult. You've got a thousand tanks moving forward and you've got to fuel them. So we knew they had this problem. Uh, we the problem they developed with food was simply their expectation of a short war. They didn't think they would be needing to supply them. And they really, it was very strange how they began the war with three armored groups, widely separated. None of them were going to be having full logistical support, none covering the others. It was a war of confidence. They went in there thinking they're going to come in with three armored groups and that'd be it. And this is the Russian problem. They weren't prepared for the long war. Is the Russian army being demoted from near peer to something equivalent to, say, less than Saddam Hussein's in uh, 1992? Has that happened already? Yes, very much so. In fact, Russia has been. Russia has a gross domestic product just below that of South Korea. It is not a rich country to decide. Now it's showing that its military force is incapable of sophisticated operations. 
So what's happening here is that the status of Russia is declining. And you see China slowly backing away. It also miscalculated what Russia was. And Putin is going to have to do something. And the reason I'm not convinced the war is over yet, because he badly needs a victory. He can't just leave now. He has to show somewhere, somehow, that he's achieved something. The bombings may be part of that, but I think he's going to throw one more shot and see what he can get. You recall, George, in our youth, there was the witticism, and I believe some in Congress expressed it, that in the Vietnam Long War, we declare victory and go home. Is, that, is, is Putin capable of that, that kind of cynicism? I don't think so, because, well, we, we weren't able to do it either. But if we went home, everybody would look at us behind our two oceans and say, okay, fair enough, they went home. Russia goes home. He goes home to Russia. There's a road, M3. It is a highway that goes to Moscow from Ukraine. And from the border to Moscow is 260 miles. They are sitting right next to them. This is their neighbors. They started a war with their neighbors. The neighbors are cocky, I think. About what they can do, and they're very worried about you know the future. This is the worst outcome they could have. I'm speaking with George Friedman, the founder and chairman of Geopolitical Futures. We're discussing what we know right now about the long war that Russia did not intend to fight, and what is to be done to end the long war. We're going to turn now to other considerations. What can we say about the new world order? Following this crisis in Europe, the energy is part of the story, the sanctions, the banking, NATO reawakened if it is. And also we have to include simultaneously on the side here, like a three ring, ring circus, the negotiations are going forward in some fashion about the Iran deal of 2015 and the U.S. making an accommodation with the Iranian regime that is allied or linked to Moscow and to Beijing when we come back. This is CBS Eye on the World. I'm John Batch. This is CBS Eye on the World. I'm John Batch. I'm with George Friedman, the founder and chairman of Geopolitical Futures, discussing the new world order that we can see from here, following or at the end of or as the winding down, choose your metaphor, of the of the hot war in Ukraine, what will it look like? NATO, Western Europe, the energy resources from Russia that are not now credible to be counted on, trustworthy. And also, we will include the negotiation between the U.S. through surrogates and its partners to the JCPOA of 2015. You observe Riley in your essay, George, it is the world turned upside down. Is there a link in some fashion between how the United States is conducting the negotiations with Tehran? It seems the U.S. is accommodating everything Tehran is asking for, including money and including taking the IRGC off the terror list, if that report is accurate. And how the U.S. is conducting its relationship with Ukraine. They both seem at at an arm's distance. Is that significant, George? I think it's very significant. Uh, We'll talk about Iran in a bit, but the United States has realized that it has a a unique and overwhelming power with the dollar, that all trade in the world is conducted in dollars, most trade, 
And if the United States stops cashing in your rubles for dollars, you're going to be in big trouble. And this is not a trivial capability, and it's superior in many ways to kinetic warfare. But the United States heralded the the showdown with Russia with one with Iran. Remember, Iran has been under these sanctions for quite a while. And what's really going on is for the United States is adopted something new, and we're not quite sure it's going to work. The puzzle then about Iran, these negotiations are part of the way Moscow looks at the world. Moscow is participating in some fashion as an ally or an advisor or a backstop in Iran. At one point, there was said to be a deal and then new claims by, I think it was Sergei Lavrov or someone else in the Kremlin, that they wanted to conduct business with Iran post-JCPOA. So are these negotiations now mixed up in U- about Ukraine, about Tehran? Is it all one stew, George? They are to some extent, but the Russians just are not that important at this. The really important powers had a summit meeting in Israel this week. This was the United Arab Emirates, where I'm at now. Uh, it was Egypt. It was Morocco. And all these countries gathered together in opposition to the deal with Iran. Remember that Trump dumped the deal with Iran because it didn't include missiles and didn't have really strong enough uh, inspections. And the missiles were important because the Iranians tossed those a lot, around a lot. Now, Biden came in and essentially decided that if Trump had done it, it must be bad, and decided that he was going to renegotiate the entire thing. The problem is that every ally we have in the Middle East, Arab or Israeli, is utterly opposed to tightening on the Trump agreement. Finally, we see that a series of assassinations have been carried out by the uh, Islamic State in Israel at about the same time these negotiations, these meetings were taking place. Now, I was told by someone here in Dubai, in all sincerity, that the Iranians are behind the Islamic State. Now, given that one is Shiite and the other is Sunni, I find this very hard to believe. But he was very knowledgeable and very persuasive. And he said, look at the timing. Look what happened. We were there. And that's where they started the shooting. So what we're facing here is not only uh, the question of Iran. We're now facing a potential intifada in Israel that would involve all of the Sunni world as well. Central Asia, George, we must flag Central Asia as uh, part of the future if all of these matters come to a successful conclusion. An essay of Geopolitical Futures points out to how much the economies and the workforces of Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, and the South Caucasus as well depend upon Russian trade or long-standing Russian relationships. That's not surprising. They were part of the Soviet Empire. So right now, your measure of Central Asia watching this conflict in Ukraine, does it think of itself as in the target zone, we're next, and the same for the South Caucasus, Georgia? Or does it think of itself as having an opportunity here to reach a new accommodation with Moscow, weakened by this conflict? Moscow visited them before this war uh, in Kazakhstan. 
where uh, there was some rioting and the Russians came in as peacekeepers and arrested some of the major leaders, put them in prison and basically has tried to take control of Kazakhstan, the largest country in the region. We see resentment from that, but it hasn't broken out. But we see Armenia, who is a, a pro-Russian and thinks it got screwed in the deal, uh, beginning to send missiles and so on to various places. So one of the things that's going to happen here as the war ends is that a lot of countries that felt they had to work with the Russians are planning very hostile actions. The British just toured uh, the South Caucasus, basically opening doors that were shut for them for a long time. So they're dependent on Russia, but they're in play. And it'll be interesting watching it. China has an opportunity to grow its business into Central Asia, into the South Caucasus. Is that a possible consequence of China being disappointed with Russia and no longer being uh, concerned with its uh, competition with Russia? They've tried that in the area and were unsuccessful because they tend to bring in their own workers to work on the various projects that they have. So when they do Belt and Road in Pakistan or in Uzbekistan, they bring their own workers. And there's a lot of resentment to China, and China is dialed back because of that. Uh, many of these projects are work projects for Chinese, and the people who live there get nothing from it. So they have to rethink everything, too. And then they're in the middle of a financial crisis of monumental proportions. They've got their own problems. A year from now, the spring of 23, will we still see an active conflict zone in Ukraine in the Donbass or will that be a quiet border? That will be decided in Moscow. In a sense, if Moscow and the Russian public decide that enough is enough, we'll be quiet. But if the Russians continue to operate there, to intrude there, there is going to be an ongoing guerrilla war of the sort that we see now where out of nowhere, Ukrainian troops pop up and hit them. The Ukrainians are not going to give in. The Russians may not be able to give in for political reasons or they may be forced to give in, but it's really going to be decided in Moscow. George Friedman is the founder and chairman of Geopolitical Futures. He's traveling, as he said, he's in Dubai, the UAE. UAE is integral to all of these discussions to be continued. I'm John Bash. You're listening to CBS Eye on the World with John Batchelor. Oh, my gosh. The Disney executives in charge of content oh, have decided that they are going to up the ante on gen, uh, gender politics. They had an all-hands meeting promising that at least half the characters now in its productions will be LGBTQIA2+, or from racial minorities, by the end of the year. Thank you, Disney. Somebody's finally done it. They have finally done it. Uh, Now, uh, this is great. They're also going to overturn. They're going to work. Their company's mission is to overturn this law in Florida. Now, Ron DeSantis had something to say about it. Here's Ron DeSantis' response yesterday. For Disney to come out and put a statement and say that the bill should have never passed and that they are going to actively work to repeal it, 
I think one was fundamentally dishonest, but two, I think that crossed the line. This state is governed by the interests of the people of the state of Florida. It is not based on the demands of California corporate executives. They do not run this state. They do not control this state. I also thought it was interesting. I talked to the Speaker of the House yesterday afternoon, and he said Disney never called him while they were putting this through the House. They didn't seem to have a problem with it when it was going through. If this was such an affront, why weren't they speaking up at the outset? And yet they won't. If we would have put in the bill that you were not allowed to have curriculum that discussed the oppression of the Uyghurs in China, Disney would have endorsed that in a second. It is. (laughs) He is so good. That is good. He is so good. You notice what he just did? They didn't call during while it was in the house. He just threw just threw a log on the internal fire. Oh yeah, every Disney employee oh, knows they gosh. didn't move they a muscle, muscle because they didn't. Act, you know, they don't actually care about no, any of this crap. No. Okay, so so here's the thing. Oh, the, the I think the the people who are in charge of the craziness they do care. Those yeah. oh, employees, that that, yeah, yeah they absolutely do. care. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it is it it's now the absolute woke that are running Disney. I want to play the. Uh, the Disney executive in charge uh, of general entertainment. This is what she said in a company-wide Zoom call that Disney, they have to do certain things. Here she is. I'm here as a mother of of two queer children, actually. Um, uh, One transgender child um, um, and one pansexual child. um, Pansexual. and, And also as a leader. Um, and that was the thing that really got me. We had an open forum last week at 20th where, um, again, the home of, of really incredible groundbreaking LGBTQIA stories over the years where um, one of our execs stood up and said, you know, we only have a handful of queer leads in our content. And I went, what? I, that can't be true. And I, and I, and I realized, oh, it, it actually is true. We have many, many, many LGBTQIA characters in our stories, and mm-hmm. and and yet we don't have enough leads. Yes, um, and narratives in which gay characters just just get to be characters, right? Um, and and not have to be about gay stories. Mm-hmm. And so um, mm-hmm. that's been very eye opening for me. And I mm-hmm. hope this is a moment where shoot. Um, the 50% of the tears, <laughs> sorry, are coming. Um, uh, we don't, we just don't allow each other to go backwards. Okay. Mm. So she's not going to allow anybody to go backwards. And she means this. She's crying about it. So she means this uh, deeply. And how she must, how she must have just felt now that no one, you know, if it's not for them, if it's not for these cartoons, Who's going to accept her pansexual child? Who's going to do that? I'd like the ages of her kids. I'd like to know uh, how old they were when they decided to change gender. Or Anyway, um, now, cut to queer stories in Disney. I'm on the production side. Uh, part of uh, the work that I feel like I can put in is um, making sure that we take place in modern-day New York, so making sure that that's like an accurate reflection of New York. So I put together like a tracker of our background characters to make sure that we have like a, the full breadth of expression. And uh, we got into a very similar conversation, Carrie, of like, oh, 
all of our like gender non-conforming characters are in the background. Mm. And so it's not just a numbers game um, of how many LGBTQ plus characters you have. We mm-hmm. got mm-hmm. the further, uh, the, the more centered a story is on a character, the more nuanced you get to get into their story. And especially with like trans characters, you can't see if someone is trans. There's not one way to look trans. And so kind of the only way to have these like canonical trans characters, canonical asexual characters, canonical bisexual characters is to give them stories where they can like be their whole selves. Huh. Um, now uh, here's a, a Disney executive producer on the not at all secret gay agenda. It's like, I love Disney's content. I grew up watching, you know, all of the classics. They sure. have been a huge, like, informative <laughs> part of my life. But at the same time, like, I worked at small studios most of my career, and I'd heard, you know, you hear whispers. Like, I'd, I'd heard things like, oh, you know, they won't let you show this at a Disney show. And I'm like, okay. So I was a little, like, sus when I started. And, but then my experience was bafflingly the opposite of what I had heard on my little pocket of like, you know, proud family, Disney TVA. Um, the showrunners were super welcoming Meredith Roberts and like the, the our leadership over there has been so welcoming to like mm-hmm. my, like not at all secret gay agenda. And so like, I, I feel like I felt like it was, I mean, like maybe it was that way in the past, but I guess like something must have happened in the last like, like they're turning it around, they're going hard. And then all that like momentum that I felt like that sense of, I don't have to be afraid to like, let's have these two characters kiss. Let's in the background, like I was just wherever I could just basically adding queerness to like, the, if you see anything queer in the show, I'm proud of them. But like, I, I just was like, no one would stop me and no one was trying to stop me. There you go. So that's what Disney is now I happen to have the Disneyland prospectus. This is what Walt went to uh, all of the banks to try to get them to do Disneyland. And he clearly spells out what Disney is all about and what Disneyland is all about. Now, let me ask you, with this agenda, does this match Walt Disney World and why Walt Disney's and Walt Disney World has been the brand and the name that you could trust. Walt Disney, sometime in 1955, will present for the people of the world, to children of all ages, a new experience in entertainment. In these pages is proffered a glimpse into this great adventure, a preview of what the visitor will find in Disneyland. The Disneyland Story. The idea of Disneyland is a simple one. It'll be a place for people to find happiness and knowledge. Oh. It'll be a place for parents and children to share pleasant times in one another's company. A place for teachers and pupils to discover greater ways of understanding and education. Oh, it sounds like this fits right in, doesn't it? Here the older generation can recapture the nostalgia of days gone by and the younger generation can savor the challenge of the future. Here will be the wonders of nature and man for all to see and understand. Okay, well, what's the problem? You could interpret that. I'm sure Walt meant let's have transgender people all over. We need a Disney. Hey, right over here. I'm your Disney princess. I'm sure that's what he meant. 
until you get to this part. Disneyland will be, be based upon and dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America. It will be uniquely equipped to dramatize these dreams and these facts and send them forth as a source of courage and inspiration to all the world. Disneyland will be something of a fair, an exhibition, a playground, a community center, a museum of living facts, and a showplace of beauty and magic. It will be filled with the accomplishments, the joys and hopes of the world we live in, and it will remind us and show us how to make these wonders a part of our own lives. The problem with this is Disney and Disneyland was based on the facts and the ideals that created America. Disney has gone so far off the rails. I am canceling my Disney uh, subscription. I will not go to their parks. And this kills me as a guy who has always loved Disney. I will continue to buy up the artifacts and the, and the um, uh, real true history of Disney to preserve it so someday people can remember what Disney was. But this is no longer Walt Disney's company. It is truly in name only. And I have to tell you, I have been waiting for a while uh, to start a fundraiser, and I wasn't going to ask you for your help, but it, it, I, I can't wait any longer. I can't tell you what I'm working on, but I need the seed money. I need a million dollars in seed money, and I just want you to go. It's something for Mercury One that will hang on just a second. This has been its inspiration the whole time. It will, if I may quote Walt, it will be based upon and dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and hard facts that have created. It will be uniquely equipped to dramatize these dreams and facts and send them forth as a source of courage and inspiration to all the world. You want to help me on something, I'm just going to call it in honor of Walt, Project Florida. I want you to go to, uh, I wasn't planning on doing this today, I want you to go to mercuryone.org. And either donate to the general fund, or if you can, I don't even know on the website if you can do this, uh, just market the Florida Project. Will you? I need to raise a million dollars for something that we can turn around in pretty quick time that will truly be something. I've been talking about it internally for about three years will truly get your children to experience history, real history, in a way that they will leave saying, when can we go back? When can we go back there? I, I've been thinking about this for over 10 years. The technology was available about five years ago. It was about a billion dollars I can now do it for a million, and I would love for your help. This will be for the uh, Mercury One Museum, uh, and I plan on taking it on the road. If you would uh, like to donate, 
It will be tax deductible. You do it at mercuryone.org. That's mercuryone.org. Disney, we've had enough. We've had enough. Good luck with your future. Good luck. You are the Disney guy around here. You love Disney. You've love always Disney. loved them. Love Walt Disney. Love what he wanted to create. Love what he did create. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I love Walt Disney. Before we get into the downfall here, can you take us back to the beginnings? What did he want to create? Because I think I don't think people have any idea what he actually okay, wanted. Okay, so at this point. he just wanted to. He was a newspaper cartoonist, and the first thing he wanted to do was make uh, film. He wanted to make a cartoon. Um, he made a silent. The first Mickey is actually a silent, um, but then uh, that was delayed because sound came out, and so he wanted to make Mickey Mouse with sound. So the first one, not released, you know, in mm. order. First one was shelved so Steamboat Willie could come out. He wanted to break the rules on things. Mickey Mouse became huge. He wanted to make movies, real movies, really studying things. Bambi. Uh, came out, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was his first. But he studied, he made, I mean, he would bring animals into the art department. I mean, he wanted to break mm. all of the traditions and do something spectacular. The war hit, his studio was taken over for the war. Um, uh, the unions uh, started boycotting him. Um, and once the unions hit him, he was never really the same. He really kind of gave up on the Walt Disney Company itself as a movie company. Um, and you can kind of see that. The last one he was really into was um, Sleeping Beauty. Um, and after that, he, he just didn't want anything more to do with it. And so he started doing the theme park, and he mm -hmm. wanted to make a theme park. He did the theme park, but that's not really what he had in mind. He saw that, and he was like, wait a minute. I think there's something here about a city and when, when he designed um, Walt Disney World, it first didn't have the Magic Castle and Disneyland in it. Uh, Roy made him do that because Roy said, we got to make money. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. He wanted just to build Epcot, which was the experimental prototype city of tomorrow. And it, it, it is the, it's genius. It, today, it's genius. Um, and I think he saw... What's happening now? I think he saw the, bro the breakdown of the cities. He saw that we were, we were building cities that were just kind of this bridge between two worlds, even now more so. Um, and he wanted to build these cities all over. He said it was the most important thing that he ever wanted to do, um, or that the most important thing of his life, and he never did it. The, the other thing is... Um, Everybody claims they loved Walt Disney. Hollywood hated Walt Disney. Um, hmm. the, the newspapers were all snobs. He's a cartoon guy. Um, they, they did not like him or wish him well. Hollywood didn't like it because he didn't like the unions. And the reason why all of his movies had like Kurt Russell in it is because he had a small pool of actors that would go against, if you worked for Disney, you didn't work for anybody else. Mm. And it, Gosh, it's so hard to believe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Especially he back was, then. Yeah, he was trying to break up the studio system. And uh, so if you were working for him, no other studio wanted you. And now they've turned into 
the, the studio machine. system. They've turned yeah. into the organization that's going to yeah. cast you aside and ban you and blacklist you yeah. for the things you believe. It's you know we're really discovering big is not always better. Mm. You know, um, these companies have gotten so big, and in, in the case of Disney, they just handed the entire company over to the employees. I mean, it is out of control now. The CEO is not in charge of of Disney. He's he's being held hostage uh, by the cast members now. And because, because he's not. I think everyone now looks at Disney and thinks, oh, they're just a bunch of crazy, like, left woke people. The CEO is not really that, right? Like, he was. At well, least he's not. So I, I wouldn't say that he's a Texas conservative. <laughs> right, right. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, sure. But sure. for that role. Yeah, for Hollywood. He is a mm-hmm. conservative. Really? Yeah. For that. For, for that. For role. Hollywood. Right. You know, for Hollywood. Um, and he just wanted to take the company and just say, let's make movies. Did you, by the way, see, uh, who was it? Was it Mark Andreessen uh, from, uh, is it Coinbase, mm-hmm. that, that kicked and said, you're fired? Yeah, uh, to, to, to get rid of all the people who were talking politics? Yeah, yeah he's One not way the CEO. Another. He was a big investor in Coinbase, but the Coin, Coinbase is the right company okay. that did that. Yeah. So the CEO of Coinbase came out and said, did you see the t- Twitter feed? He said, it's been a year, came out yesterday, mm. been a year. Best decision I've ever made. Really? He said, we are so much more efficient. We are, we're rocketing. Everything is going really well. And the staff is happy. Well, you know, because those are the things you were supposed to avoid. I mean, there was that don't talk religion or politics and polite company, right? That, yeah. that was always, and I understand that, like, that, that, that's just a generalization. But when it becomes the entire focus of your company, the reporting is that Disney went into this and said, look, We've seen some of the, the hiccups we've had in the past with this. Let's just not talk about it. Let's just let's just make great entertainment for families and Correct. do our thing. And now I don't buy that that's what they were doing, at least to my standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was rejected by the employees to the point that they revolted. I mean, they, 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 oh, they walked out. They walked out. And I would say don't. Let the Disney door hit you in the ass on the way out. <laughs> I would have that. I would have celebrated. Okay, good. Now we don't have to fire them. Thank you. Bye bye. Um, the uh, uh, the problem is is that instead of saying that, he gave them more power by saying, "Okay, we're going to make gay friendly content for children now." Which is what every parent has been screaming for. <laughs> no, I don't think that's true. Yeah, uh, actually. Uh, so, you talked about the original vision of, of Disney and, and Epcot, the city of uh, experimental protocol city, city of tomorrow. experimental prototype city of tomorrow, okay. community of tomorrow. Um, and what's interesting about that because you have the the original design, right? Uh, I mean, I've seen the the blueprint. It's it's incredible. Yeah. That he just left behind at a meeting somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is crazy. But a big part of that planning for the average person in the city of tomorrow was community. It was not built around giant skyscrapers. It was not built around, you know, big, even expansive suburbs where everyone had gigantic yards and no one ever talked to each other. It It was all about community. How? All of the houses were facing each other with a park in between. And then there was the what was called the wedway, you know, those cars that constantly run in, you know, in yeah. Disneyland or mm-hmm. Disney World in the future section to the land of tomorrow. 
there were stairs that would go up and then you would just get onto the wedway and that would take you into the into the center of the city mm-hmm. and he had it was all built in a circle and he had concentric circles uh all the way but it was all linked so there was no real traffic no street traffic because all of the traffic was underneath the ground but all of the houses faced each other with this park and had very small backyards because he, he thought we shouldn't be in our backyard. The way he grew up is you'd sit on the porch in the sun and, mm. you know, and all the kids would be playing. And so it was just giant park out front. So the neighbors would get to know each other. And then you so you didn't drive into your driveway at the front of your house. No, you would. I think you could have there was a driveway behind everybody's house yeah. in the alleyway and you could park behind but there was really no space behind the house it was all in front and everything was made to be community to bring people together um and it's it's it was a remarkable design i wish they would have made it how much uh, how much of our problems today are a result of us kind of taking a lot of these discussions on into an, an anonymous place like social media as opposed to actually talking to people in our community, knowing your neighbors who might have different views and talking that stuff out. Well, a lot of our problems socially are caused by that. Um, But our problem is the opposite politically. For instance, um, we've known, I've just listened to an expert on the dollar um, getting ready for this show just a couple of days ago. And I'm listening to him explain what happened in 08, 9, 10, 11, 12. All those days that I said, this is going to collapse. This is, they're going to print money and it's not going to be able to hold. Do you remember I talked about Moody's downgrading us and others are going to drop the dollar? Mm-hmm. That was all conspiracy theory. Listening to him, because he was there, he documented everything. That's exactly what was happening. But they didn't talk about it. No one in the global finance community wanted to talk about it because they needed a plan. So now they're coming out and saying, we've got to study this and we have to have a bill passed in the next six months. And we're going to talk to everybody. That's all done. Now they're just bringing the sheep along. That's the problem is most of our problems are because things are so big Giant corporations and giant global, you know, globalist uh, looking at the whole thing and not including the average person at all. And it, it won't work. It won't work. Things get too big, like Disney, and it'll work for a while until your people revolt. And that's what's happening with Disney now. If you enjoyed this video, hit like and subscribe to our channel so you'll be sure to see similar videos from Blaze TV with the added bonus of signaling YouTube that your voice and opinion still matters. And if you're looking for more great conservative content, check out one of the two videos suggested here.